Let me just start out by saying if you are here and maybe you're not a follower of Jesus or maybe you came in and you feel really far from God today and we're glad that you're with us, uh, there's no question that you have no doubt or skepticism that's off limits. So we actually wanna try to create a safe place for you to wrestle with the claims of Christianity. So thanks for being with us. Um, Man, I I don't know if you know this, but uh, you can now uh, leave reviews for churches on Yelp and Google. Did you know that? Uh, It used to be just a restaurant thing. You would go and get chicken wings that you loved and you wanted to rate and rave about, uh, or you had a bad experience that you wanted to complain about. So you'd get on Yelp, get on Google, and you would leave those reviews. Well, you can now do that for churches. Uh, And Frontline actually has received some of these reviews. Uh, Some of them have been really good and encouraging. Some of them have been really bad and insightful. And then others are just really weird and strange. So uh, I want to read you a few of these. Here, here's, a, here's a good review uh, that we got. And the person in the room that left this is uh, here in a minute about to cringe, right? Uh, here's, here's a good review. This comes from Mel S. She says, the message is always what I need to hear. Spot on, truth-based words, straight from the heart. Thank you for being who you are, Frontline. Thank you, Mel, for that. We appreciate that. Uh, whoever you are out there, we're grateful. Uh, here's a bad review it's from Scott W. It says, uh, seeker-friendly church. I attended this church for over a year. Young and inexperienced staff, ill-equipped for counseling. Counseling is not gospel-focused. Pastor does not return phone calls. Uh, to which that last part, there might have been some truth there. So Scott, we're very sorry about that. Thanks for pointing that out. Um, here's, here's a weird review that we got. And I actually had to like pull this. This was like six pages long. I had to distill this down. This is just one segment of a brilliant, brilliant review from Scott H. Um, here's what he says. He says, the lead pastor, Josh Curry, took the stage with his large black beard to offset his hairless head. <laughs> it's true. At, as well as a suit of some material that wasn't familiar to me. <laughs> That's the best part. The, the experience was memorable, to say the least. So on and on and on, we could go uh, good, weird, and bad reviews. Here's the question. If, uh, if Jesus were to plant a church in OKC, and people were to get on Yelp or Google and leave reviews, what would those reviews say? Well, they'd be all over the gamut, but many of them, some of them at least, would say something like this. I've attended Pastor Jesus's church for three years, and he won't stop talking about money. He's always talking about money. It's at least a monthly basis. It comes up, um, and it seems to be a real big focus of his preaching ministry and of his sermons. And whether that's good or bad, those would be the reviews that people would leave. He won't stop talking about money. And it's true, by the way, that Jesus talked about money a lot. Uh, Let me just give you some data here. Out of Jesus's 38 parables, 16 of them were about money and possessions. So nearly half of his parables dealt with the issue of money. In the gospels, one out of every 10 on average, one out of every 10 verses deals directly with the topic of money, right? That's 288 verses in all that deal directly with the topic of money. Think about this. Um, the Bible as a whole, if you move out of the Gospels and go to the whole Bible, the Bible as a whole has about 500 verses on prayer, has less than 500 verses on faith, but it has over 2,000 verses on money and possessions. Let, let me say that again. Uh, the Bible has about 500 verses on prayer. By the way, prayer is kind of a big deal in Christianity, something we do a lot. Uh, 500 verses. Faith, 
also a big deal within Christianity. It's kind of a foundational element of what it is to be a Christian, faith in Jesus. The Bible has less than 500 verses on faith, money and possessions, over 2,000 verses on money and possessions. Why? Why is that? Why are there so many verses and so much talk in the Bible about money? Well, there are a lot of reasons, but I'll just give you two of them that stand out. Uh, The first is this, money reveals your heart and my heart, and more specifically, it reveals what we value. Listen to these words from John Piper. He says, money is some kind of currency. It might be paper or metal or in other cultures, perhaps stones, or in our culture, electronic records. This currency functions as a culturally defined representation of quantities of value so that the currency can be used to pursue something you want by spending it or giving it or keeping it. Money, the symbolic representation of quantities of value, becomes a moral issue because of the rightness or wrongness of what you pursue with this gift God has given you and how you pursue it. You can pursue good things or you can pursue evil. You can use it to show that you value what money can get you more than Christ or you can use it to show that you value Christ more than what money can get you. Which means that the currency itself is not the issue that we must wrestle with. There's something much more foundational, something far deeper than wealth or poverty, even deeper than greed or generosity. And some, listen to what he says, money is one cultural symbol that we use to show what we value. It is a means by which we show where our treasure is, who our treasure is, and the use of money is an act of worship, either of Christ or of something else. So the reason why the Bible talks about money a lot is because money reveals what you and I love, what we worship, what we want, what we value. Here's the second reason why I think this topic comes up a lot in scripture. It's because in the words of Jesus, you can't serve God and money. You can't actually have two masters. You've got to pick which God you're going to serve, either God, money, or Jesus as God. Uh, John Calvin, he says it this way. He says, where riches hold the dominion of the heart, God has actually lost his authority. Now, by that, he doesn't mean that God has somehow ceased to be king and doesn't have any authority. What John Calvin is saying is that when money becomes your functional God, then functionally speaking, God no longer has power and authority in your life. You've traded him for it. So this is why it comes up a lot. It's a really big deal, not only in Jesus's teaching, but out throughout the entire Bible. Now, here's what we're doing today. We're not talking about money uh, in general. We're actually gonna talk about tithing in specific, we're going to talk about what, what the Bible teaches about generosity and what it actually means to live a, a generous life as a Christian. And here's kind of the question, like, what does God expect of me and my finances with a local church? Is tithing something I should do? Is it not? What, what is the expectation that the Bible would put on me? And here's the big idea. If money reveals what you value, then the tithe reveals what God values, So here's what we're going to do. Instead of just camping out on one passage of scripture, uh, we're going to kind of bounce all over. And and this, usually what we do is we take a book of the Bible or a passage and we work our way through that. But this is going to be more of a biblical theology, a kind of a sweeping overview of what the Bible teaches on money and possessions and generosity. So uh, eventually we're going to land in 2 Corinthians chapter 9. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and grab it and go to 2 Corinthians chapter 9. And I promise you, we will eventually get there. So here's the first question that I want you to wrestle with 
what does the Old Testament teach about the tithe? Have you ever thought about that or asked that question? What does the Old Testament teach about the tithe? Uh, The word tithe actually comes from the Hebrew word ma'aser, which just means tenth. It it literally means tenth. Uh, But here's what's interesting. What happened in the Old Testament, right after God brought his people out of slavery and bondage in Egypt, he brought them across the Red Sea safely alive and brought them to Mount Sinai. And this is a significant event in the formation of his people. It's here that God gives his people the law through Moses. And, and a part of that law, if you read through it, uh, what you'll find is that God actually instituted not one tithe, but a three-tithe system in the law a three-tithe system. So here, here's the very first tithe that we read about in the Bible. Uh, this is a tithe that consisted of one-tenth of all that you had, your gross income, your possessions, your cattle, your wealth, your stuff, your, your herds, everything that you owned. You would give a tenth of that, and it would go to the, the Levites, a group of people within Israel, uh, that didn't have any way of making an income. Their job as Levites was working in the tabernacle or working later in the temple alongside of the priest, and they would do ministry. So if you needed to, uh, uh, if you sinned and you needed to bring a sacrifice to the tabernacle or the temple, uh, a Levite or a priest would there deal with you and help you and interact with you, and they would help you sacrifice that animal and pronounce you forgiven. So it's kind of like the ministry of God was happening in the tabernacle and temple, and they didn't have a way to make a living. So God said, here's what I want you to do. Take a tenth of that and give it to the tabernacle, to the Levites, so that they can keep on doing the work and they're taken care of, they're provided for. And then the Levites would take a tenth of that and they would tithe to the priests, a smaller group within the Levites. That's the first tithe. It's just a general 10% cut of all that you have goes straight to the Levites so that the ministry and mission of God can continue in the tabernacle and then later on in the temple. That's the first tithe. Here's the second tithe. The second tithe is often called the festival tithe. And if I can be honest with you, this is my favorite tithe in the Bible. Let me just tell you why. Uh, Every two out of three years, the people of Israel would then take an additional 10% of the remaining 90% that they'd already tithed on. And they would take an additional 10% tithe on that. And they would throughout the year set that money aside for one epic party that God wanted them to throw two out of three years. So here's what they would do. They'd take, you know, money, they'd set it aside. They'd take cattle, they'd take herds. And then every two out of three years, God would bring them to Jerusalem and they would throw this amazing party. Let me just read this to you. This is Deuteronomy 14, 22. And I've been trying to get some of my friends to go in on something like this in 2018. It's like, can we just 10% of our income for a few days? It'll be great. Trust me. So here's Deuteronomy 14, 22. Listen to this. You shall tithe all the yield of your seed that comes from the field year by year. And before the Lord your God and the place that he will choose to make his name dwell there, you shall eat the tithe of your grain, of your wine, and of your oil, and the firstborn of your herd and flock, that you may learn to fear the Lord your God always. And if the way is too long for you, so that you're not able to carry the tithe, When the Lord your God blesses you because the place is too far from you, which the Lord your God chooses to set his name there, then you shall turn it into money and bind up the money in your hand. And listen to this, go to the place that the Lord your God chooses and spend the money for whatever you desire, oxen or sheep, like who doesn't want to just buy a sheep and eat it, right? That's, that's what you call a party. Um, 
He says oxen or sheep or wine or strong drink. Literally, that's translated beer, right? Uh, Whatever your appetite craves, and you shall eat there before the Lord your God and rejoice, you and your household, and you shall not neglect the Levite who is within your towns, for he has no portion or inheritance with you. Can you imagine if just the people here gathered in this room, we got our money together and uh, a 10% of your salary and a 10% of my salary and 10% of all our salaries thrown together and we threw an amazing party and we just said, thank you God for all the ways that you've provided and we wanna do this to remember you and to say thanks. That's one of the tithes in the Old Testament. The third tithe is called the charity tithe. The charity tithe is really beautiful because what this was is every third year, uh, another 10% on your remaining funds would go directly towards the Levites, the widows, the orphans, the poor, and the most marginalized and oppressed in society. That's what you would do is you would take a 10% uh, cut of your, your salary on that third year and you would give it away so that those who didn't have could receive and they could get the benefit of it. So three tithes. First tithe goes straight to the tabernacle and the temple. Uh, Second tithe, this is the epic party tithe that you would throw. And then the third tithe, that's the charity tithe given directly to the poor. Now here's what's crazy. There are many, many other ways that God commanded the people of Israel to be generous outside of this already pretty strong three tithe system. You had every year an annual census tax that would be taken up, and this went directly to the service and maintenance of the tabernacle and later the temple. And everybody in Israel had to pay this. This was a flat tax. Uh, The rate was about two days wages, and it didn't matter what your uh, economic status was, whether you're wealthy or poor, every man, woman, and child was required to give about two days worth of wages as a tax just to keep the temple okay and functioning and running well. And then every seven years, listen to this, this is bizarre. Imagine if God's view of of money and resources became our primary view and culture. Um, Every seven years, you had the sabbatical year and all debts were forgiven and all debts were released. So if you were uh, in over your head in debt, every seven years, God would just kind of wipe that clean. If someone owed you a ton of money, God would just say, at the end of seven years, you just forgive them. God is instituting all these ways so that you don't have this deal where there's overly rich uh, or overly poor people. He's wanting to try to bring some sort of equality and beauty into his people. Every seven years, all debt's forgiven. Every 50th year, this was called the year of Jubilee, and and this was even more intense than the sabbatical year. Uh, If you uh, raided a village and you grabbed prisoners or captives, every 50 years, you had to set those prisoners free and they they were able to go back home. Um, They didn't have bankruptcy in this day. So uh, if you couldn't pay a debt, what you would do is you would sell your property and eventually sell yourself into kind of servitude or slavery. So what happened is every 50 years, uh, your property was given back to you and you were freed and you became just a normal citizen again. All the debts were forgiven. Every 50 years, God just kind of uh, hit reset, men in black style, and just kind of financially reset the entire scene. And then in addition to that, there are all of these passages and verses that command the people of God to be radically generous, specifically to the poor. And this has blown my mind. I spent last year reading uh, back through the Bible, Genesis to Revelation, looking at all these passages on money and on possessions. And I was, I was overwhelmed and incredibly convicted at all the ways that God directly ties giving money to the poor. Almost every time money's mentioned, it's in relation to the poor. Listen to this. This is just one of many, many examples that we could throw out. Deuteronomy 15, verse seven. 
If among you, one of your brothers should become poor in any of your towns within your land that the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not harden your heart or shut your hand against your poor brother. But what are we to do? Shall open your hand to him and lend him sufficient for his need, whatever it may be. You shall give to him freely and your heart shall not be grudging when you give to him. Because for this, the Lord your God will bless you in all your work and in all that you undertake. For there, there will never cease to be the poor in the land. I love this. What does he say? There's always gonna be the poor with you. So just throw up your hands and be overwhelmed at the situation. No, there's always gonna be the poor in your land. Therefore, I command you, you shall open wide your hand to your brother, to the needy and to the poor in your land. This is such a big deal to God that to give to the poor, God will say over and over in the Bible is to give to God. If you fail to give to the poor, God will say over and over, you fail to give to me is what God is saying. This is a big deal to God. So here's why we have to start at the Old Testament before we can work our way to the new. Because when we hear the tithe as modern American Christians in this day and in this culture, we tend to think what? 10%. Tithe is 10%. So if you want to be a super Christian, then you're going to give 10% of your net income. If you want to be like ridiculously generous, you might work towards 10% of your gross income. Well, we are grossly mistaken because the Old Testament tithe was far more than a 10%. There were three tithes in place, plus numerous ways the people of God were commanded to be generous. So if you calculate all of this up, most scholars agree by by the time the Old Testament came to an end, uh, the average Israelite was giving about 23.3% of their gross annual income in tithes and in offerings. 23.3%. And by the time the first century rolled around, you had the Roman government that was oppressing the Jewish people. So you had Roman taxes on top of that. By the time the first century rolls around, they were on average giving away about 50% of their income between taxes and different tithes that were in place. This is very, very different than what you and I probably grew up thinking when we thought of the word tithe. Now, here's the next question that we wanna ask. That's what the Old Testament taught about the tithe, but why the tithe? Why did God put the tithe in, the, in place in the first place? Why did he institute this thing called the tithe? Well, here's why. He didn't do it because he lacked money and possessions. He didn't do it because he was needing us to take care of the things down here for him. Here's why God instituted this three tithe system is because he wanted to shape and form the people of Israel to view money and possessions very differently than the surrounding pagan culture. He wanted to shape and form them to view money and possessions as a gift from God. And so it's a gift, meaning you should be able to enjoy this. Some of you in this room, you're very blessed with financial uh, uh, benefits and blessings. You've got a lot of money. It's not wrong to be rich, right? It's actually okay. The Bible says if you're rich, you should enjoy that and see that as a gift. But it becomes wrong when you clinch it like this and it becomes the God that you live for, the God that you sacrifice for, the God that you worship. And what he's trying to do with this tithe is teach people, hey, don't view money as yours. View it as I'm giving you a gift, yes, to enjoy, but ultimately to be used for the furthering of my kingdom and so that my mission will continue on in this world. So money is a gift, but it's also a tool. In other words, money was never meant to be the end. It never was like God blessing you with financial resources and great possessions. And that was ultimate. No, here's why God gave you 
and me the stuff that we have. Craig Blomberg says, material blessing was never viewed as an end of itself. An abundance of resources was to be shared with the nations and particularly with the needy. This is why, by the way, when you read through the Old Testament and you realize that the people of Israel, they failed to give this tithe almost all the time. They, they failed to, to faithfully give these three different tithes. They would do some of the law, but not other parts of the law. And so over and over, God is gonna come to the people of Israel and he's gonna rebuke them for not tithing. And, and, and you can hear the anger in his voice, not because he's saying, hey, I want your money. He's saying, you've forgotten that the money that you have was a gift that I gave you to be used specifically to serve the needy and the poor and the most vulnerable in your society. So listen to the way God says this in Malachi chapter three uh, in verse eight, you can hear the, the anger and the intensity in his voice. He says, will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how? How have we robbed you? And your tithes and your contributions, you are cursed with a curse for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, not just parts of it, the full tithe that there may be food in my house and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil and your vine and the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Then all nations will call you blessed for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. The context of this passage is God is actually withholding material blessing from his people because they have started to idolize and worship and love their stuff over using the stuff as a gift and as a tool for the furthering of God's kingdom. So he's saying, I'm going I'm to make sure that your land doesn't bear any fruit. I'm going to make sure that everything dries up until you learn to honor me and actually bring the full tithe in. By the way, can I just say that I think uh, in, in some parts of Christianity, obviously like the prosperity gospel is horrifically wrong. It's done so much damage. Pastors that wear predominantly white suits, uh, taking up 37 offerings, trying to raise funds for this jet that they're supposedly gonna use for the kingdom of God and all of that nonsense. We can kind of spot that pretty quickly as nonsense. But one of the things that we've done is I think sometimes we course correct too much. And now we say, yeah, there's actually no connection between honoring God with your money and him actually opening up the resources for you to have more. There's no connection whatsoever. And what God is saying here is actually, I gave you this to, I blessed you with material possessions and stuff, not so that you would hoard. I blessed you so that you would be a blessing. And because you haven't learned to be a blessing, I'm actually gonna cease to bless you in this way. There is some connection here between God saying, yeah, I can, I can trust you. Here's more to be used for my kingdom. So that's why God instituted the tithe. It reveals his heart for the world. And then here's the next question. What does the New Testament actually teach us about the tithe? So when you turn the page and you get to the New Testament, what does the New Testament tell us about the tithe? Well, it's really interesting that the New Testament has very little to say about this tithe, very little. In fact, the only time it's mentioned is by Jesus. And the only time Jesus mentions the tithe is when he is rebuking the religious leaders of his day for missing the whole point. They got all detailed about keeping the law of tithing out of their spice rack and cumin and dill and mint, but they weren't actually uh, living lives of justice and mercy in the society. So he says, you've missed the whole point of why put the tithe in, in place in the first place. But here's what's so crazy. Instead of seeing this tithe play out, within the early church, 
what we see instead is something far more jaw-dropping, far more intense than a three-tithe system. Let me read you this. This is Acts chapter 2, verse 42. And I want you just to listen to the difference between Old Testament Israel with this rigid three-tithe system that they barely would keep, and then what is apparently happening in Acts chapter 2 and how different those two things are. It says, They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, the fellowship, the breaking of the bread and the prayers, and all came upon every soul. And many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles and all who believed were together and had all things in common. Amazing stuff being said, but then look at this. And they were selling their possessions and their belongings and they were distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Now, just in case you think that was like a one-off event that never happened again, look at Acts chapter four. Now, the full number of, the, of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. And no one said, listen to this, no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. But they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. Great grace was upon them all. But look at this. There was not a needy person among them. Can you imagine if that was said by our city Frontline church, there is not a needy person among them. Why? For as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet and it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. How does this happen? How does this happen where people who are naturally greedy, naturally stingy, holding onto resources with clenched fists, become people who stop counting their own possessions as their own and open up their hands in radical generosity and it creates this culture where it could actually be said of them, there was not a needy person among them. How does that happen? Here's how it happened. It wasn't because God instituted this rigid three-tithe system in the law It was because of the radical self-sacrifice of Jesus that created a culture of generosity. That Jesus coming to the earth and giving his life and his death and, and, and his resurrection, forgiving our sins and giving us everything that he had, including himself, that created this culture of radical generosity. And it was no longer, here's the law, do this. It was, here is the grace of God and their hands just went like this. This is what happened and the early church. By the way, this is one of the reasons why the early church had explosive growth in a culture that was very oppressive where it never should have got off the ground in the first place. Uh, Historians, both Christians and non-Christian historians have looked throughout church history and they've tried to figure out how in the world did the early church grow so rapidly? How did it grow? Because it was in the Roman Empire. It was one of dozens of, of religions. It was certainly the weirdest religion, saying that there was only one God who was actually a man who was born of a virgin. Seriously, some weird stuff in there. And then they're being incredibly persecuted and oppressed. It was illegal to be a Christian. If they found out, they'd arrest you. They'd burn your house down. They'd torture you. They'd kill you. Like, all, like nothing good could come of becoming a Christian in the first century. And yet today, if you get in a plane and you travel to Rome, you can walk around the ruins of the Roman Empire, but Christianity is alive and well. How did that happen? One of the reasons, obviously the, probably the primary reason is the resurrection of Jesus kind of changes things. Oh, he actually had come back alive. That changes things, right? 
Well, but one of the other reasons that historians point to frequently is their radical generosity. They were so generous with money that outsiders and non-Christians, especially women, they, they, women were the fastest growing part of the early church because usually they were widows and they, they didn't have and they needed and they were being told that they had value and that they could be cared for. So the early church grew rapidly because of the generosity of the church. In fact, listen to this. This is a Roman emperor uh, named Julian. He's known in history as Julian the Apostate or Julius the Apostate. His uncle was Constantine. So kind of a big deal. Uh, he, he grew up in a Christian family, but then Julian as a young boy rejected Jesus, rejected Christianity, walked away from the faith and uh, just became an apostate altogether and is writing a letter to a friend complaining about the generosity of Christians. And listen to how he says this. He says, do we not observe how the benevolence of Christians to strangers has done the most to advance their cause? It's disgraceful that the Christians support not only their own poor, but ours as well. While everyone is able to see that our own people lack aid from us. He's complaining. He's like, not only do they care for their poor, but they care for our poor. And they're not even Christian people and they're caring for them. It's one of the primary reasons why the early church had explosive growth. Now, do you feel in your bones how countercultural this is? My house, it's not mine. My money, it's not mine. My cars, my stuff, my possessions, it all belongs to God and I'm gonna hold it like this. That's so incredibly countercultural. In fact, Tim Keller says this. He says the early church was strikingly different from the culture around it in this way. The pagan society was stingy with its money and promiscuous with its body. A pagan gave nobody their money and practically gave everybody their body. I love this. And the Christians came along and gave practically nobody their body and they gave practically everybody their money. It's like, oh, you bunch of prudes, but wow, you're very generous and you're just <laughs> giving everything away, right? You're, let it be said of Frontline Church that th- these are people that cannot keep their wallet in their pants, right? We want, we want financial <laughs> promiscuity. That's what we want. It's a good thing to have happen. I'm gonna get in trouble for that later. So, <laughs> so, so next question, let's just move on. Um, what, it, all of that, all of that, that content, that data, all of this stuff that scripture teaches, what do we do with it? Here's the question. What does God expect us as Christians to give today? Well, that's a really, really beautiful question to start processing and wrestling with. And I don't know of a better place to take you than 2 Corinthians chapter nine. See, I told you we would get there and we did. So 2 Corinthians chapter nine, uh, I want you to look at verse six. And this is probably the most helpful passage in the New Testament on the idea of money and generosity. And this is what Paul says. The point is this, whoever sows sparingly, will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, right? Not under the law, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. As it is written, He, God, has distributed freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food 
will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way. Why? To be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. It's one of the best passages. And here's the idea here. What Paul was saying is uh, in the New Testament, the idea of the tithe seems to fizzle out and this new idea of giving in proportion to what you have and in the proportion of the grace of God starts to transition in. So what Paul is saying is there's no longer this rigid law of this three-tithe system. Now it's grace upon grace that God has shown you. And what does that do for the way that you think about your money? So let me just get even more specific and answer the question that some of you are really asking in your heart of hearts. Should Christians tithe today? Well, David Garland, he says this, the tithe puts all the focus on how much one is required to give and allows one to ignore how much is kept for oneself. Some can give far more than the tithe and have more than enough to provide all the necessities of life. Others barely have two mites for their daily needs. So here's what I would say. If God expected the tithe in the Old Testament under the law, we should at least use this as Christians as a basis for evaluating how much we should give in view of God's saving grace. We should just use that as a basis. Or let me say it another way. God hasn't ever put the the three-tithe system in place for Christians, but at the same time, what the Israelites practiced at God's command provides believers with a really strong pragmatic a model even of evaluating our own giving patterns and what we do with our money. If someone that didn't know the grace of Jesus in the Old Testament was giving 23.3%, then how crazy is it of me that I've, I've tasted the goodness of Jesus. I've heard about the cross. I've, I've heard about the resurrection, all that God has done. How could I not open up my hands with radical generosity and want to give so much more? Because I'm not under law, I'm under grace. That fuels generosity. There was a time earlier in this last year where I looked at my giving and I felt really grateful and really proud and maybe even some sinful pride. I thought, man, look, I'm giving more than 10% gross income. I'm doing it. I'm being generous. And then I started to study and I started to read the Bible. I started to realize all that God said in his heart. And I realized I'm so far short what an Israelite was doing who didn't even know what I know about Jesus. And that fuels me. Like, how can I be more generous? How can I use my home? How can I use my stuff to bless and to serve? Because all that I have has been gifted to me by God. So here's a question. I'm almost done that starts to come up when we talk about this. And as I've talked about this with uh, different members and attenders in our church over the last few weeks, uh, one of the the biggest questions that people start asking right off the bat goes something like this. Um, Should Christians give to the local church? In other words, okay, Andrew, I hear what you're saying. I need to be generous with my money. All right, I agree with that. But where does the money go? Could I not just give to a nonprofit? Could I give to a maybe a business that's doing some good in the city? Could I give to like a missionary or a person or some sort of event? Or is there a way that I could give in some other way that doesn't funnel through the local church? Or am I supposed to actually give to the local church? Well, in order to understand the answer to that question, what we have to realize is that in the New Testament, the Bible actually commands churches to use money in very specific certain ways. 
So let me just give you a few different ways that God said, I'm entrusting this local church with local leadership. And then there are people in this church that give to the church. And then those local leaders make the decisions on how to best use these funds. Just a few ways, uh, care for the poor. It's littered throughout the Bible, Acts 4, Galatians 2, 1 Corinthians 16, 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. In other words, churches would give to the poor like we just did with this compassion offering. Care for eligible widows. Uh, Paul comes to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 5, and he says, I want you to look through the roles of your membership. Find uh, the, the widows that, you know, to be a widow in our culture today is very, very difficult, but to be a widow in the first century was a death sentence. You had no way of getting income or money. And so what Paul tells Timothy, I want you to use the money that the church has and I want you to fund these eligible widows so that they're taken care of and they're provided for. Imagine if Timothy would have said, oh, sorry, no one in our church actually gives. They all give to nonprofits or other people doing good in the city, but they're not actually giving to the church. No, Timothy goes, yeah, that makes sense. We have money, we'll, we'll give it. Relief aid for churches and other people experiencing hardships and natural disasters. You see this in 1 Corinthians 16. Uh, pastors getting financially supported in the ministry. Certain pastors, they work hard at preaching and teaching. And what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9 and 1 Timothy five seventeen is that those pastors should actually get paid to do that. That should be their full-time job, right? So where does the money come from if pastors are supposed to get paid? It comes from the local church. The planting of new churches and the funding of missionary endeavors and on and on and on we could go. But the early church, these local churches with local leadership would use the money they had and they would put it to good work and good use as the leaders saw fit. This was just a normal rhythm in the early church. So let me say it like this. Churches today even cannot carry out their God-given missional mandate without the regular sacrificial and joyful giving of Christians to those specific local churches. So as a Christian, you're free to give to whoever you want. You're free to give to a nonprofit, and I hope you do. You're free to give to uh, people doing good in the city, and I hope you do. And you're free to give to certain endeavors and certain projects, but that's all above and beyond what should be your first primary giving to the local church so that the local church can can continue its ministry and its mission of Jesus in the world. So that leads me to this last thing. How does Frontline Church think of giving today? How do we talk about and think about giving? I want to give you three words very quickly. The first is tithing. That might be a word that you're afraid of, but you don't need to be afraid of it. It's a really good word. And even though we're not under the strict three-tiered tithing law that the Old Testament people were under, you and I could at least start by looking at our giving and saying, I'm going to, I'm going to do 10% gross. I'm going to start there. And that's going to be the, that's going to be the floor, not the ceiling. Seeing 10%, not as the end all, but seeing 10% as the place to start as just basic mature Christianity. Tithing, right? And that money that you give, that I give, that we give together goes to further the mission of God. It doesn't just go to keep lights on and pay bills. It goes so that the kingdom and mission of God can continue advancing in our world. Here's the second way we think of giving. Tithes, alms. Alms are intentional gifts to the poor. When you see someone who is poor in your community group, in this church, when you see someone who is poor in our city, you have so many scriptures that command and encourage and exhort you to open up your hands and give to the poor. You gotta start realizing that, seeing that. And we wanna think about alms. These are beautiful ways that we can alleviate suffering and poverty by giving money to those who need it or giving possessions to those that need it. 
And then finally, last thing, offerings. Offerings are more focused, intentional gifts uh, for very specific needs. This could be a natural disaster. This could be uh, what we did with our compassion offering where we said, we're gonna take up one big offering together and all the money that's given, every penny that you give is gonna go directly to alleviating poverty and suffering uh, both uh, locally and globally. Offerings, so tithes, alms, offerings. And that's how we want to form ourselves, form you, form our church. Start thinking about money and possessions and all that God has done. All right, I'm done. I'm gonna, I'm gonna close. So the notes are finished. And let me just say this. This is really hard for me. And I don't know if you feel this too. But the more I learn and the more the Bible teaches, it's not like I find it easier and easier to do. The more I learn about the heart of God and what he wants for my life and what he wants for money and possessions that he's given to me, the more I realize how far short I'm really falling. And so I don't know if you feel this. My, my six-year-old, um, she just says what she thinks all the time. Um, and she talks a lot. And man, with my six-year-old, we were processing this as a family. We were talking about generosity. And, and I was trying to find ways for me to be more generous and our family to be more generous. So I said, I want you to find a toy that you like. And we're gonna give that toy to someone that needs that toy. We're gonna find another little boy or another little girl. And we're gonna give them one of your favorite toys. And man, you would have thought I said, lay down, I'm gonna chop off all your arms and all your legs. She freaked out. And she began to just flail and, and have anger and cry. She was crying. And then I was processing. And I was like, Evie, I want you to be generous. Evie, I want you to be generous. God has given us so much. Let's be generous. And her response, she goes, it, literally, this is, this is what she looked up at me with tears in her eyes. And she said, Papa, she calls me Papa. She said, Papa, I want to be generous. I just don't want to give away anything that I like. <laughs> and in that moment, I was like, me too. <laughs> that, that's how I feel. Do you hear this? And go, I want that. Ah, but I don't know if I want that. I want to be generous, like giving away 23%, 30%, 40%. What would that look like? What would it look like if there were not any needy people among us? I want that. I just don't want to give away anything I don't love. I don't want to give away stuff that I really prefer. I don't want to live a life that's now hard because I have to be more generous. How do people who are naturally greedy and stingy that hold stuff so tight become people of radical generosity? So only one way. It's not by more law. It's not by, all right, it's a new year. I'm going to New Year's resolution this thing and I'm going to just be more generous. It's not by trying to pull yourself up by your moral bootstraps and just fight your way into generosity. Here's how people that are naturally greedy and stingy become more generous. It's by gazing at the unbelievable generosity of Jesus who literally gave everything for people who did not deserve it. Listen to this, 2 Corinthians 8, 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, Yet for your sake, he became poor so that you by his poverty might become rich. Jesus looked down from heaven and instead of being stingy with his life, being stingy with his grace, being stingy with forgiveness, 
He left the riches and the comfort of heaven and he came to this earth. And Jesus, he gave us everything, even his own life on a cross where he hung there and he actually took our debt on himself and paid our debt. And then in turn gave us all of his riches and his forgiveness and his grace so that those of us who are spiritually poor could become spiritually rich. That, friends, that'll take any hard, hard, greedy, stingy heart. And it'll slowly start to melt it to where you become a a generous person who freely gives away your stuff. That's my prayer for you. It's my prayer for our church as as we do this together, that there would be no needy person among us.